Much like Britney Spears, oops, we did it again. After fixing a grand total of six Star Wars movies, we turn our attention to The Man of Steel. The Nerd by Word starts now. Welcome back, ladies and gentle nerds, to the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast hosted by two nerds who are clearly much nerdier even than the nerd costumes sold at Spirit Halloween. I'm Dave, here with my buddy Chris, and we are ready to deliver a major big talk as we attempt to fix Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. But before we get to that, it's as always time for... That's right, nerd news. Chris, what's shaking? Well, it would appear that the final nail in the coffin for Diamond Comics distributors' monopoly in the direct market has at last arrived. IDW is the latest publisher to move away from Diamond, announcing this week an exclusive distribution deal with Penguin Random House that will begin June 1st of next year. The dissolution of the aforementioned monopoly began last year with DC's earth-shattering decision to sever ties with the company, Shortly thereafter, Marvel followed suit. Of the announcement, Diamond President Steve Geppi said, quote, I would like to thank IDW for their many years of partnership, and we are delighted to continue selling IDW's comics, trades, and graphic novels to our retail customers as a wholesaler effective June 1st, 2022. At Diamond, we understand the unique needs of the direct and book markets and work hard every day to service and support all the stakeholders in our industry, from developing sales tools and launching new services to organizing industry-wide events and engaging with fans on our consumer platforms. Diamond is consistently creating and evolving new and easier ways for publishers, retailers, and fans to connect. I am proud of the role that Diamond plays, and I look forward to our continued service of the direct and book markets, end quote. So what's wild about this to me is... Um, in my personal experience, you know, going to my local comic shop is how just absolutely frustrated and, and furious the comic shop owners seem to be over this. Um, you know, after years and years of Diamond having this effective monopoly um, and being frustrated with the poor shipping conditions, uh, books simply for no reason being left out of shipping orders, uh, which obviously upsets customers if they're on their pull. Or if they're, you know, lining up to get a, a highly anticipated book, um, that you know, moving towards another publisher, I guess, I guess, change is scary for for folks, no, no matter what, even if it is a seemingly positive one. And then the other thing that just blew my mind was that Diamond really didn't seemingly work towards improving those conditions. They were still falling, you know, victim to the same you know, lapses in, in shipping conditions, you know, books were showing up damaged and unsellable uh, and still leaving stuff out, uh, you know, missing shipments. So uh, it, it's just really wild, this whole situation of, you know, DC firing the first shot. You would think you'd get your ducks in a row to try and salvage something, but uh, doesn't seem to be the case with Diamond. Dave, what are your thoughts on this? 
yeah, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, it is exciting as far as like possibilities go. Um, you and I both have been pretty vocal about the fact that a, mono- a monopoly in distribution is a bad idea for comics. You know, once we inject a little bit of competition in there, uh, everybody wins the comic book shops, the consumer. Uh, ultimately, everybody uh, has a better experience and a better situation when people actually have to compete. Uh, you know, that being said, I noticed a lot of um, a lot of comic book stuff is now flipping more towards um, book traditional book distributors. Um, and there is a part of me that a uh, is concerned that you know as more and more publishers shift that way, you know, can can this distribution model be supported by you know book distribution companies, which are, you know, kind of used to having a significantly longer time to distribute something. I mean, in the small amounts, they might be able to, you know, deal with it. But when pretty much every publisher starts relying on on this kind of distribution model, can that hold? And the other concern, of course, is obvious. Uh, You know, are we going to end up shifting basically from one monopoly to another? Um, That's one of the things I think I really appreciated about how DC ultimately broke um, from Diamond is, you know, the kind of almost like a new, not new company, but a new arm of a company kind of sprung up around that, which I think was a good idea because DC diversified uh, a little bit, you know, having something that a company that handles a little bit more the, you know, the comic book shop and the floppy part of it. And then a different company handles the trades and stuff. I think that was, that was smart business because ultimately, you know, that's what we're kind of looking for at this point, you know, multiple companies offering, you know, distribution, distribution to multiple publishers. So they have choices and they can, they can go with what, what suits them best. I would really be troubled if we're just moving from one monopoly in diamond to a different kind of monopoly with something like, you know, penguin random house, for example. So I I think, um, cautiously optimistic, probably best, uh, represents my general attitude about this new story. Yeah, I think, I I think I'm right there with you. Um, one of the things that kind of makes goes towards that cautious uh, optimism is I think that these are only like two year contracts and two year agreements. So, you know, you can kind of back out hopefully if, if things are, you know, unsatisfactory. Um, my, my other growing concern um, is, is kind of what you touched on is that we are, it seems more and more that we are just, you know, going towards the trade paperback, only kind of market. And, and, you know, there are even some sectors of the fandom that worry that floppies are going to go the way of the dodo, um, to borrow one of your phrases, and that we are just going to go exclusively towards trade paperbacks. And, you know, we have, you know, companies like Penguin Random House who, you know, focus primarily on trades and, you know, something with a little bit more length than that, um, that is a bit concerning. Um, at the same time, I don't know that, they want to shake things up too much. So it'll be interesting to watch develop. That's just one of my concerns. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably fair. I think um, for for all its problems, the floppies market is still extremely important. There is um, a huge market for people who want, you know, pieces of the story every week versus just, you know, sitting down and, and you know, reading what is the equivalent of a, of a novel in comic book form, a, a graphic novel, if you will. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think, you know, getting your story in pieces like that, a serialized sort of storytelling week by week, um, I, I think there's still a big audience for that. And I hope that that doesn't completely fall to the wayside. Well, speaking of uh, 
high drama and exciting series that you want to check in on every week, Dave, you have one that I think sent you literally over the moon. Yeah, I mean, how how much better does it get? I've been I've been championing this particular notion of this pitch for a comic series for what seems like the entire length of the existence of this podcast at least and that is Batgirls uh, a series that unites Cassandra Cain, Stephanie Brown and Barbara Gordon as a team into a single title you know something that literally makes every Batgirl fan happy by giving us a little bit of each of our favorite Batgirls and here it is finally announced launching this December Batgirls, written by Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad, and illustrated by Jorge Corona. So I would say this is exactly what the doctor ordered. According to uh, DC solicits for the uh, first issue, Batgirls Cassandra Kane, Stephanie Brown, who are only able to navigate the dark, gritty, and oftentimes scary Gotham City by leaning on each other's friendship. Mentored by Oracle, Barbara Gordon, the Batgirls, move to the other side of town where Barbara can keep a better eye on them while the hacker Seer is still invading their lives. Steph may be too rash sometimes and Cass doesn't speak much, but what they lack in similarities they make up for with their mutual respect and love for each other and what makes them stronger together as Batgirls. This rebellious group of superheroes team up to kick bleep and try to make it as normal teenagers in this pizza slumber party of a series packed with energy attitude and friendship like this is what i've been waiting for i you know have talked a lot about how much i love the the stephanie brown character uh particularly how she was written as batgirl uh in brian q miller's uh series uh but i i'm also a very big fan of cassandra kane and after the end of her own batgirl series which lasted 72 73 issues something like that her character has kind of been rudderless and lost as well. Uh, so it seems like such a natural thing to put these characters together. Now, I will say, based on what I've seen so far in the series, there is a certain amount of um, de-aging going on a little bit here, I think, from where we've seen these characters previously. Uh, Cassandra was kind of getting out of her teenage years. Stephanie was, you know, starting to go to college the last time we, you know, I checked in with her. So they're both teens again. They're both a little younger and a little less experienced. But at the same time, I think this series seems to capture really the essence of each character. You know, Cassandra Kane is the silent but deadly uh, Batgirl. Stephanie Brown, the bright, optimistic Batgirl. And so seeing those two playing off of each other in, in sort of almost a like an 80s buddy cop situation. I think I'm really, really, I'm really feeling this one. I'm incredibly optimistic about, you know, the team that is uh, handling the series. All the artwork that has been released for it so far looks absolutely wonderful. Uh, Every one of the covers just sings. I think, I think we hit on something here and and DC is finally giving a a very large Batgirl fan base exactly what they've been looking for. And let's not forget that in this series, Barbara Gordon will be acting once again more as Oracle than Batgirl, even though, you know, we still have the whole miracle cure for her paralysis to live with. The fact that she's kind of resuming that role of mastermind, you know, mentor and, and hacker, I think that's still the best version of Barbara Gordon that we've had in comics. So, you know, overall, I'm really excited for this, Chris. 
Yeah, I am as well. And we got very, very fortunate. Um, I reached out in, in just, I, I shot my shot, as, as, as you might say, uh, in the replies to this initial announcement, trying to, um, to, to garner an interview. And um, Michael Conrad um, was very, very kind. And um, I communicated with him about per- perhaps lining something up with Becky Cloonan. Uh, or himself with with the uh, with DC, um, so hopefully that'll be something on the horizon that we'll be able to nail down. But I'm super excited for this series. These I'm telling you what, Inkyuk Lee's uh, cover. I think Inkyuk Lee is quickly becoming like one of my favorite cover artists. This I think it's a wraparound cover that I'm seeing here. It's just yes. absolutely stunning, uh, just breathtaking. So I'm super excited for this series. I'm. Based on um, you know what I'm seeing here, art wise, and you said pizza party, slumber party, or something like that. <clears throat> I'm getting teenage mutant ninja turtle vibes. Um, you know, they're playing video games and some of the solicited art. Like it's it's super fun team up uh, type of issues. So I'm I'm totally here for this series. Yeah, and it's just been so long since since I've really gotten to enjoy you know Stephanie Brown and her best, and seeing her bounce off of you know excellent characters like Barbara Gordon and Cassandra Kane. Th- this is just you know this this is just it, man. This is what I've been waiting for from DC. Don't let me down, DC, and cancel <laughs> this sucker in twenty four issues again. Let's let's let this one settle and really get a good run in here. Well, and, and to, I think, a previous point that you said, um, one of the biggest, you know, as an outsider, um, one of the biggest trends on social media, at least Twitter, that I've seen is Cassandra Kane has a huge, rabid following. And so this seems like you said, like giving everybody what they want. Like, so it seems like a, a win, 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 win. That's exactly right. If the, if they you know have the the right portrayal for these you know three characters, and then we we are going to get the Stephanie Brown fans in here. We're going to get the Cassandra Kane fans in here. We're going to get the Barbara Gordon fans in here. This book should sell. I mean, DC could have uh, you know a really strong hit on their hands here if they do these characters justice. All right. Well, that's it for nerd news, everybody. After a quick break, we're going to be back with. The big one. We are going to try to fix Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Stick around. And we're back, ladies and gentle people. And here it comes. The one we have all been waiting for. It's time for... And boy, do we have a big talk today. After spending so much time fixing Star Wars movies of both the prequel and sequel variety, we are now actually going to turn our attention towards something a little more comic booky. We are going to try to fix Zack Snyder's 2013 Superman movie, Man of Steel. Man of Steel, of course, famously featured Henry Cavill as Superman Clark Kent, Amy Adams as Lois Lane, Michael Shannon as General Zod, Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, question mark, uh, Diane Lane as Martha Kent, and Russell Crowe as Jor-El. Um, so uh, th- this movie uh, has for, you know, many years now had sort of a pretty divisive presence. Um, many uh, people on social media feel this is the very best portrayal the only interesting portrayal of Superman, whereas some 
comic book purist feel that this might be a bit too much of a departure. Um, I'm very interested to see where this discussion brings us. As always, when we try to quote-unquote fix a movie, we start simply by uh, listing three things, each of us, that we think are the big problems in the movie and how we would fix them. And I'm so excited, Chris, to hear what your first fix is for The Man of Steel. Well, <clears throat> my first fix um, is is the biggest issue that I have with the film, and that is the character of Jonathan Kent. I think the character needs a complete and total makeover. Um, so I rewatched this in preparation for this episode, probably for the first time in several years, probably shortly after release. I think I watched it about a year after it came out, and that was probably the last time that I saw it. Um, but it was a big enough issue for, you know, for me to remember it like it was yesterday. Um, and in rewatching it, it wasn't as egregious as I remembered, but it was still troublesome. So the biggest problems that I have with Jonathan Kent's character is, of course, conceal, don't feel like just hide your true identity. And even if you like stay away from like the bigger symbolism uh, whatever allegories that might be, concealing your true identity and hiding your true self, I think is a is a terrible message, even with the best of intentions. So at this rewatch, it came across that like he wasn't like um, ignorant or hateful or anything like that. Um, it was just, and it's also kind of um, unfortunately, it's 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 a lot of what I see. You know, we live in a small town uh, area, a very rural area, um, and there's a lot of people that, even with the best of intentions, they they don't don't necessarily want people to rock the boat too much. So, and you know, if you want to use this as a metaphor for, you know, being multiracial or um, a person of color or um, the one that really struck home to me the symbolism is or, or the metaphor of um being uh, a member of the lgbtq community really just hiding who you are in your true self because the world around you just can't handle your true identity so even though he did not come across as overtly hateful it is still i think a terrible message um to say you know don't don't show the world who you really really are because they can't handle it even, you know, I've seen some people say right now, the, the world's just not ready right now. And so, you know, I have I have friends and family members who have, you know, been closeted members of the LGBTQ community for years and years because they have a, a grandmother who would just die of a heart attack um, if they were to come out. Um, and I just think that's a terrible message to reinforce, especially the one that the, the, the most egregious scene, I think, was. Uh, is after the bus accident and he said, am I supposed to just let them die? And he says, maybe. And, you know, even in that small town ethos, Midwest USA, being a Midwesterner by birth myself, I just don't think that that lines up with what they're going for. I mean, even if you disagree belief wise in, in something like that, I still think that the Midwestern ethos, the small town America that they're going for is, you have to do the right thing and you're never going to let anybody come to harm as a result of it. Um, so I just really think that's a really huge misfire that still 
does not sit well with me, even though this rewatch overall, I will say, was very enjoyable, um, more so than I remembered. But this was the big glowing issue to me. And um, I'm not the biggest Kevin Costner fan. Um, I think that he gets a lot of hoopla because he was in Dances with Wolves or Field of Dreams. Um, so I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the casting. Also, I mean, he commits suicide by standing there and getting sucked up by a tornado. I think that's probably the most memorable scene of Jonathan Kent is just like, no, son, it's okay. I'm just going to die now because the world can't handle you at your truest form. So it's it's just... Uh, it just really rubs me the wrong way. And I, I will I will wholeheartedly agree with, with that assessment. Um, the Park Hand character is very ill-conceived in this movie. Now, I will say, um, as, a, as a longtime Superman fan and somebody who's read Superman comics pretty much yeah, for an eternity now, over 30 years, I always am hesitant when the comic books decide, and they periodically go through this, that uh, Superman as a character would be better off if his parents are dead a la Batman. And, you know, they did this in the, in the new 52 just a few years ago where Superman's parents both were dead and, and he had no sort of lingering connection with Smallville. And, and that is always a lost opportunity um, because I think his parents uh, and his upbringing, his adoptive parents specifically, loom incredibly large in in why Superman is who he is and some of the best scenes in some of the very best Superman comics are those where he goes back to Smallville and has some kind of interaction um, with his adoptive parents. I specifically think of, you know, uh, stuff in like um, Superman for all seasons, for example, there are some very, very poignant moments in there when, when he is racked in, in with self doubt and he returns home to Smallville and spends time with his, with his parents to kind of refocus and, and find, you know, get his bearings again in essence. And you can never quite see um, Superman do that with, with these parents. Um, not, not just, you know, Jonathan Kent now in particular, but but both Kents in general have a very odd portrayal. You know, there's stuff like Martha Kent saying, uh, you, you don't owe this world a darn thing. And, and it's just like, it's very um, dismissive of what he is trying to do or be or the path he is trying to find as, as this, you know, this do-gooder, if you will. Um, so, so Pa Kent here really always has chafed me in a lot of ways because he's not really guiding Clark towards becoming Superman. He, he seems to be, if anything, a roadblock in his hero's journey. But on top of that, I think there's something incredibly ill-conceived about his death scene beyond, you know, all the memes and jokes we can make about Tornado Daddy. And, and that is that if you go ahead and you take that moment it was completely unnecessary. You know, Clark does not learn a lesson from this death because he could have saved his father. Whereas if we, you know, and, and I know I'm going to get flack from some listeners that I'm going to go ahead and quote the Superman, the movie with, with, with Chris Reeve. It's too old. It's too old fashioned, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. I really don't care. The, the lesson learned here matters. So in, in Superman, the movie with Chris Reeve, when Pa Kent dies, it is from a heart attack. 
it is something that is outside of Clark's control. And so what does he learn from this? Well, he, he literally gives voice to that when he stands at his father's grave. He says, all this power, and I couldn't save him. And that is a lesson that Superman has to learn time and time again in the comics, that no matter how hard he tries, he cannot, in fact, save everybody. There are things that are outside of his control, despite what uh, the naysayers when it comes to Superman may think. He is, in fact, not all-powerful. And so this is not a lesson he is learning here in any way, shape, or form. What he is learning instead is uh, some people are not going to want to be saved. You better not save them. Otherwise, they might sue you or something for like wrongful life-saving. Like It's just the whole message of the moment is is completely in opposition to the journey Clark is on and trying to find his way toward becoming Superman. And, and more than you know, all the memes and all the jokes we can make about that, it's just very, very ill-conceived overall. The character and the death scene in particular. I, and, and you bring up some interesting points, um, two of which I want to you know, touch on again. Um, first and foremost, this really creates like an unnecessary Uncle Ben moment for him. Like, you know, one of the most formative moments and the biggest sources of guilt for Peter Parker is that he could have saved his Uncle Ben if he would have done the right thing. But it was like an unconscious decision. Clark is is sitting there and forced to watch his father be sucked up in a twister. um, And it's an absolutely conscious decision. So now he is willingly racking his son with guilt for what reason because the world just can't handle it and it's just wild to me and um you know the other point that i wanted to touch on is you said uh you know new 52 and, and other iterations completely remove the smallville from his character and i think that's a huge mistake even with my lack of experience reading wise because i think that that grounding in smallville and sometimes they go over the top and it's cheesy and it's token and it's it's you know it's goofy, but I think the the duality of that character and being both Kryptonian and both uh, a Kent uh, and a you know from Smallville, I think that adds a layer of complexity that keeps him from being this overpowered alien. Um, and so one of the greatest criticisms that we always see of Superman is he's too OP or he's too this or too that, and he's he's not nuanced enough but that's one of the things that brings nuance to the character and so removing that you know even with my lack of experience you know with the readership of the character i i I can see that as you know you always see a lot of arguments um uh in think pieces online and the like you know and we've even seen this represented in several you know sort of elseworld comics like injustice that it is um it is Lois that somehow grounds him. And if anything were ever to happen to Lois, he would obviously turn evil because he loses his tether to humanity, which is a bunch of baloney because this guy's been running around for thirty plus years on planet Earth before, you know, he he gets with Lois. You know, his upbringing is his tether to humanity. Smallville is his tether to humanity. And his parents to some extent extent are his tether to humanity. Um and so I think they are one of the most important parts of the Superman mythos, they have to be gotten right and they have to play this very particular role in his journey to becoming Superman for it all to click 
in in the place and for it to all work. So so yeah, I mean ultimately his parents are extremely important and I don't think they quite click here in this movie. Um you know, we we don't need to go kindly old couple like um Lois and Clark the new adventures of Superman back in the 90s necessarily. Um but even if you look at a portrayal like um uh, John Schneider in Smallville, for example, uh, he, here's a dad who didn't always get it right, who did steer his his son wrong on occasion, but he also grew and learned and, and ultimately, you know, pl- played a role in, in, in shaping this young man and, and, you know, his his need for, for helping others. And if Smallville has a better portrayal of a character than a major motion picture about Superman, you have to stop and pause and think, what, where did we go wrong in this particular moment, Chris? And even in the few episodes of uh, Superman and Lois, I've seen as a, has a better portrayal of it, too. All right, you said the magic words, Lois Lane. What's your first big fix? God, I just feel so bad for Amy Adams because I'm a huge Amy Adams fan. There is um, there is an energy about her uh, that is absolutely mesmerizing. I remember the very first time I saw uh, a performance from Amy Adams was in the Disney uh, movie Enchanted, where she literally plays like a, an animated Disney princess that sort of gets gets catapulted into the real world. And she's like trying to apply... Um, Disney cartoon logic to the real world. Like she's trying to sing songs to the pigeons in Central Park and stuff like that. And there is such an energy about her in that role that absolutely captivated me. And then across all the the, the Zack Snyder movies that featured Lois Lane as a character, you don't get that Amy Adams energy in any way, shape or form. And that is a shame because Lois Lane as a character is is spunky, is witty, is hard-nosed. Um, you know, talking about some of the other Loises, the, the first Lois Lane that I encountered in live action was was Margot Kidder's Lois. You know, chain-smoking, uh, can't spell worth a lick, um, but incredibly uh, intelligent, a, a great nose for a story, will do about anything to get the story, um, and, and figures out Clark as Superman completely by herself. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, Terry Hatcher, you know, I know that, uh, Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman has become the show that dare not be named because of, you know, Dean Cain's recent comments on social media and blah, blah, blah. But I will, I will die on the hill that Terry Hatcher is one of the all time classic Lois Lanes. She gets so much wrong, uh, so much right about this character in her performance, even though there's some very nineties stuff in this show that feels a little wrong by, by, um, by modern standards. And even Erica Durancey on Smallville immediately captures that go-getter attitude, that never say die, that spunk, that wit, the fact that she can stand there and tease Clark about all sorts of stuff, you know, nicknames him Smallville and all that stuff. I mean, that's Lois Lane. And in this particular movie, although at least in Man of Steel, she has some agency, the spunk, the wit, uh, is is completely missing from this character. It's like she's a she's a cobra that has been defanged or something. It's like it's like she's this this docile you know lady reporter rather than this in your face um, 
force of nature almost. And that really is something that needs to be fixed. And I'm not saying Amy Adams is at fault here. She was more than capable based on her past performances to play that kind of Lois. It's just that in the writing, that Lois did not exist on the page. And anything that diminishes an icon like Lois Lane and makes her less than she is in her very best incarnations just doesn't have room in a movie like this like it is the it's probably in my opinion the most singularly wrong-headed writing of Lois Lane that I have probably seen and a lot of TV shows have you know made mistakes as you know they went on I mean even uh, Terry Hatcher's uh, portrayal you know when that show started getting a little bonkers in season three and four there were some wrong-headed things that they did even with Lois but there was a core truth to the character and that core truth just doesn't at all exist in Man of Steel so ultimately to me Lois Lane has always loomed large in my life. She has always been this incredibly powerful woman that I that I admired even when I was uh, even when I was a young boy. She was, you know, an equal to Superman, if not in powers, then certainly in every other way. And that kind of that kind of woman should not be diminished on the big screen, Chris. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of my overarching criticisms of the Snyderverse at large is that the women, uh, the female characters lack so much agency, even <clears throat> even when, um, you know, Diana shows up in a Snyder-directed film, she she plays second fiddle immediately and scales back to the men in the film, so... Um, and and Lois, I, th- I think you nailed it with like a defanged cobra here because it was not as egregious as um, Zack Snyder's Justice League, where she literally was not allowed to speak because she was in such terrible mourning. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy because like I thought that I was getting the notions of that type of character where you know she's on location in the Arctic and doing all these things, but then it's almost like she's this catalyst, like she's this piece of flint that starts the action, but then immediately is rendered useless because of the male characters. And and I think even uh, the only, I almost put this as one of my big fixes, but I figured we could tie it in here is there, there really is no agency for any of the female characters in this film with the exception of Zod's Lieutenant, whose name is escaping me. She was awesome. But, um, yeah, so it, 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 she starts this action, she goes on location and stuff, but then as soon as the stuff starts to kick off, she immediately is rendered into this damsel in distress. She can't breathe. She needs to be rescued immediately. Uh, so it, it's a bit unfortunate. And, you know, once I started reading Superman comics, I immediately identified with the character and admired the character because I got super Mary Jane Watson uh, vibes. So, like and I'm always fascinated by those types of characters, the, the non-powered significant others or family members of a superhero's life that are just as compelling because their personality is so strong. So I think, I think, um, I think it's a real big swing and a miss here. Yeah. Lois Lane is at her best steak and potatoes. And in this movie, she's more like soggy bread. And that that's a shame. All right, Chris, second fix for the Man of Steel. What have you got? So the structure and the pacing of this is like a fever dream. Um, I get what they were trying to go for. They were trying to go this like 
kind of noir flashback type of thing, but I just don't think it worked. And and they leaned into it so hard that when you actually lay it out like on a timeline, everything happens so quickly. Like Clark gets his suit and then immediately is hurled into battle. He hasn't really had any time to do anything. Um, and then it's just breakneck action, 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 cross, boom. I think this film is probably best served as two separate films. Like there's two movies in here. I feel like they're like, and maybe they don't want to do a full on origin story. And maybe that's the lack of commitment that, you know, kind of bogs this down, but it feels like there's an origin story. And then there's the Zod overarching conflict, which maybe you could have teased enough in a first film and then led into the second one. But as a result, you know, it's, it's a head spinning hurrah adventure. So um, I, I, I felt a little bit disoriented with that. I think some of the flashbacks were, um, they, they added some depth of character and it was nice, but it, it was a little bit, disorienting the pacing and the structure of the plot. It's funny that you said structure because structurally I have so much to say about this movie. So first, I, I, to comment on what you said, I absolutely adore the fact that you said maybe there's two movies here. Maybe Zod shouldn't show up till the second one. OMG, doesn't that sound a little bit like Superman the movie in Superman 2? We have the origin <laughs> story that hints at Zod and then he shows up in the second one on Earth and you have this this you know awesome sequel oh maybe they knew what they were doing back then you know in a lot of ways this this movie particularly the third act of this movie is a response to superman returns uh so superman returns came out and was immediately ambassador and criticized because it was sort of stuck in this chris reeves richard donner loop um and, you know, everything was like very much like Superman the movie. Everything that Superman was doing was more like feats of strength, like saving an airplane, lifting a land mass, you know. But he didn't have an enemy that he could punch. And so everybody was like, well, Superman Returns was a little boring. There was no action. And then in Man of Steel, they just decided to go, you know what, a third act is just going to be wall-to-wall action. Like, we're just going to do nothing but action nonstop. Everybody's just going to beat the snot out of each other. Um, which is way too reactionary and doesn't serve the movie very well. Um, it doesn't really have any chance to breathe in that third act. But, but you know, here's, I think, where the movie went wrong structurally. This movie is Batman Begins. That's, that's literally the structure it used to. We have, you know, the main character with a beard wandering around, you know, trying to find his way we get pe- in the first half, we get peppered in flashbacks to his youth and how his youth has shaped him. Then we hit about the halfway point, and this is where the main character puts on the suit for the first time, and we get the main conflict. Structurally, they, they try to remake Batman Begins with Superman. You know, and, and on the one hand, I can't entirely blame them for this. It was extremely successful um, with Batman. On the other hand... There, there are, you know, and we can talk about this ad nauseum. There are essential differences between the two characters. They are not the same, that you can't treat them exactly the same, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You know what the problem is with the first half of this movie? In the first half of Batman Begins, you have a Bruce Wayne who has already decided, kind of, what he wants to do. He's a man on a mission. He's trying to find the tools, basically, to take on his mission. 
you know, he's training, he's looking for, you know, the, the League of Shadows to try to be trained with them and get their skills. He is moving through the first half of the movie with purpose. What we have with Clark Kent in the first half of this movie is that he is moving through the movie in a similar fashion, but without purpose. He doesn't know what he is. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He has no, not find his direction yet. And watching a character aimlessly wander from frame to frame and from scene to scene in a movie is incredibly dull and boring because you do not have the promise of where this is going. You are not watching a character growing and moving forward purposefully, you're seeing a character just kind of meander about. And that's why the Batman Begins structure that they very, very clearly applied in this movie simply does not work in this movie. Because Clark, in his wanderings, does not have a clear goal set for him. So there is no forward momentum in the narrative for the first half of the movie. And then the second half of the movie basically devolves into, you know, how much of Metropolis can we destroy? So that there is no there is no clear arc for the character from point A to point B, at least the way I see it. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, so <clears throat> we have we have essentially just moved straight into your second point because ours are, are essentially intertwined. But uh, another thing that I will add to this is this movie came in response to the popularity of of Chris Nolan's um, you know Dark Knight franchise, his trilogy, and so I guess it was a thing at Warner or Snyder or whoever's idea it was. It was just like let's take this gritty, grounded thing that works so well for Batman who is at his core, a gritty and grounded character and just apply it to uh, Superman, our other big name character. And sure, that'll be work. Oh, wait, we're totally forgetting that they are at their core, essentially different. Um, so I, I think that's what suffers from it as well. Um, it, it's just like, I, I don't understand and I, I don't want to be like a Marvel over DC guy here, but I think that's one of the biggest missteps in the DC EU is that they have failed to understand the core differences of those characters and then work with it. Because this is this is Tony Stark and, and Steve Rogers. Like that whole conflict of and we could, you know, I could go way off into Batman versus Superman like that should have been the central part of that conflict is their ideologies are completely conflicting. And, and you know, you're missing out on that when you try to just copy and paste this Instagram filter from one character to another. It doesn't fit. That is exactly right. And my main criticism of Batman v Superman as well is that Superman at no point in that movie feels like Superman. He feels like Batman if he had, you know, superpowers. Um, the, the ideological differences are not represented. So, yeah, I think that the fix here uh, is, you know, is number one, don't try to imitate the structure of Batman Begins because Superman is not Batman. And two, understand that Superman at his core is a very different character from Batman and you need to play to Superman's strengths. Otherwise you get, well, well you get the man of steel is the problem. Well, and I think that's why, why it's so fascinating with both pairs of characters is when they do come together in films like the, uh, you know, in, in things like Avengers or in Morrison's JLA, 
despite their differences, the fact that they can cohesively work as a unit, put aside their differences for the greater good, that's what makes good storytelling. That's exactly right. But here there are very few differences, it seems like. All right, Chris, that actually brings us to your third and final big fix for the Man of Steel. What have you got? All right, even more than Paul Kent, this might be the most meme-worthy moment of the movie and one of the most just unsettling moments. And I'm, of course, talking about the snap. Not Thanos. I'm talking about snapping Zod's neck and murdering him. Um, Because that's the only way to save the dumb tourist white people that are just standing there when they could easily just run away, but they are standing frozen in fear. And so Superman is, of course, left with no other decision than to just snap his neck. So this is, you know, even with my remedial knowledge of Superman, this this seems um, very out of character for him based on what I know of the character. Um, you know, Peter Parker's along in the same lines, not the, the not take a life crew. Um, so it, it's just obviously just so problematic and troublesome, especially now that I'm rewatching it with fresh eyes and Jesus, Weezus people just run away. They're literally standing there. There's nothing blocking them into that area. They're not cornered off. They're standing in the middle of a wall. Please just run away. So, um, yeah, the whole scene is just a huge, huge problem. And then he lets out this soul-wrenching scream. Uh, That whole scene I could have just done without. And the problem is this is the beginning uh, of Superman's journey. So everybody looks at Superman and sees, oh, here's this guy who's just going to like, he's all powerful and everybody's nervous about this guy to begin with. And he's just going to run around and like snap people's necks every time they're in danger. But, you know, much has been said on both sides of the debate of whether Superman should kill. Has he killed in the comics before? Yes. Uh, in, in sort of main continuity stories, not just in Justice where he becomes like a, a crazy overlord. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, John Byrne very famously had him kill off his version of, of Zod after his reboot and, and then lived with that guilt for the remainder of basically that part of the continuity until they, you know, reboot it again because that's what DC does. But to me, the person who actually captured Superman and the idea of murder or, or killing in general best is, is Alan Moore in one of the all-time greatest Superman stories, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which is sort of billed as the last Superman story before the big reboot came after Crisis of Infinite Earths. And, you know, there's a lot that happens in the story, and it escalates, you know, tremendously. But basically, uh, the main villain here that it all leads to is is this interdimensional imp uh, Mixelpidlick, who goes, you know, you know, very, very dangerous in in this particular story, and in the end, the only way Superman sees that he can end this, you know, almost all powerful beings um, menace is is to kill him, and immediately Superman is just is racked with guilt, even though Lois says, "Hey, look, you 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 did this in in self defense, you know, you, you had to do what you had to do." But but Superman does not see us see it that way, and in very famously in the end of the story, he he says nobody has the right to kill, not Mixelpidlick, not you, not Superman, especially not Superman. 
And then, you know, you have this narration from, I believe, Lois, and she says, he turned and walked away in complete silence. I ran after him, calling his name, and he didn't reply. And by the time I realized where he was heading, it was too late. And so he's heading into a room filled with gold kryptonite. And as he walked into the blinding golden light, he turned and looked back uh, over his shoulder. He smiled at me, and I never saw Superman again. The idea of Superman killing is not the beginning of Superman's career. It is the place where Superman ends. Because as soon as this character kills, it's really not Superman anymore. At least that seems to be the implication of one of the all-time greatest comic book writers, Alan Moore, even though, you know, I mean, we can we can argue how, you know, how nutty Alan Moore is these days, but his writing, <laughs> particularly, particularly on Superman, is, you know, tremendous. And whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is a tremendous story. And so the idea that Superman's end point is, is killing makes sense to me. Because Superman is, in a lot of ways, um, much like Batman, a symbol, right? I mean, we get a lot in Batman Begins of how Batman is a symbol. You know, he stands for this, he stands for that. Well, you know, so so is Superman. And if you if you start having Superman snapping necks, then that symbol is is diminished. Is really what it comes down to. And to Alan Moore, when when Superman reaches the point where he kills he's not Superman anymore. And Superman himself in the story acknowledges that. It also makes me extremely sad that Superman lore has such a very um, easy fix for this in, in, in the notion of the Phantom Zone. How many stories have we read where Superman ultimately, you know, defeats Zod or any other rampaging Kryptonian with Phantom Zone technology, you know, this idea of, hey, this is what Kryptonians used for a prison, and I can lock, you know, Zod away in the Phantom Zone, and then we even might be able to have, you know, Michael Shannon pop up and reprise his role in some way, shape, or form later down the line. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Because let's be honest, Michael Shannon's performance as Zod was quite good. I don't think he's ever found any scenery that he didn't want to chew. So, you know, yeah, this 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 killing thing is is a just a major problem for the movie. And again, has has Superman never killed? Well, certainly not. Uh, there have been times where he has killed in the comics, but usually when they go to those moments, is either a some kind of Elseworld story, um, you know, free from continuity and the notion that this is somehow the Superman, or b you know, they're trying to make a really big, important point about the character, as in Alan Moore's case, where it's just like, you know what? Superman just killed, and even he knows he should not have done that. He doesn't have the right to take a life. And before anybody says this, and I have to jump in and say this too really quickly, Chris, there is the ongoing story uh, that people like to point to, that Superman 2, the Chris Reeve movie, that there too, um, Zod... And the other Kryptonian criminals died um, because they basically tried to fly off and, and jump in, in stuff in, in the Fortress of Solitude and went down cliffs and they're dead. Now, very famously, directors changed. A huge chunk of Superman 2 was filmed uh, by Richard Donner during production of the first Superman. And then uh, the producers basically fired Donner, brought on a different director to finish the movie. So I think it bears remembering that there is, in fact, a scene filmed by, I believe filmed by Donner, which sees uh, the uh, Zod and his ilk actually arrested 
uh, and being walked out of the Fortress of Solitude by police. Now, how police got up there to the Fortress of Solitude, <laughs> I do not know. But I do know that the original intention of those scenes were uh, very clearly that Superman did not kill them. He depowered them, and then they could be arrested, and they could be locked up like regular criminals. Anyways, end rant, Chris. <laughs> I think, I mean, like, it's also, like, the fact that he bears this restraint from killing, I think that adds, you know, more nuance to the character to, to lean on a previous point that we made. Of course, it's easy for this overpowered character to just snap a neck and that's that's the easy way out. What makes him a compelling character is the restraint and and holding back. So I think just giving him the easy way out of just snapping in the neck, like I, I think that's just a, a kind of a cheat. Uh, and I've seen you know the argument repeatedly that you know this is the moment where he learns that he should never kill again. Like, dude, I have never killed anybody. I don't need to kill somebody to learn the lesson that murder is wrong. Can we maybe just like dispel that myth? We don't all have to run around and have like that one guy or or lady that we kill just so we learn the lesson that murder is wrong. That's that's baloney. All right, here we are. Probably the biggest point for you. Um... What is your third and final point? You know, Superman says in this movie very famously that the S on his chest stands for hope. But the movie doesn't give me a lot. And that's really the biggest problem I have with The Man of Steel. It feels overall so joyless. And a Superman movie, you know, should have these these moments of light, of joy, of goodness and they're not really there there is one scene where it, it kind of almost finds that moment and that is when when superman flies for the first time you know and he's flying along and there's this 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 smile just spreads across his face and in that moment in that moment i believe it in that moment i believe that the superman can be the superman and then that moment passes and we never revisit that kind of feeling that sensation again and that is such a shame. And really, you know, when, when you look at, at Superman, um, all of this stuff gets boiled down so well by so many really good comic book writers. You know, I think, for example, of, you know, the finale of, of All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison. Now, there is a human being who gets it. Um, you know, Lex Luthor kind of like steals Superman's power for himself and then he starts seeing the world as superman and he realizes oh my gosh i've been wasting my life you know and he he basically becomes a, a good guy right then and there just because he was able to see the world through superman's eyes i don't think this superman would would have that effect on on, on a lex luther character that the joy of, of his powers and the joy of helping others and being there for people is just not there. And, you know, a part of that sure is the color palette. I mean, this, this is a very muted movie. There's not a lot of, you know, bright colors, even in Superman's suit, but it goes beyond color grading. This is this when I'm talking about light and brightness, I'm not necessarily talking about colors. I'm talking about, Superman's character, how he carries himself, how he interacts with people. Um, it, it's just 
lacking. And I'm not saying this is because Henry Cavill isn't capable of that. I think Henry Cavill is a geniusly cast actor in the role of Superman. And I'm going to go ahead and take it a step further. I think the cast of this movie in general is really, really good. I think it's really the writing that fails these characters here. And if we could inject some optimism, some hope, and some of that that Superman goodness into this movie, I think a lot of, you know, diehard comic book Superman fans like myself would feel very, very different about this movie because there's a lot to like here. Uh, and so, you know, we, we talk a lot about the stuff that needs to be fixed. There's a lot of good stuff here, too. The movie looks pretty darn good. Um, it, it, it's very competently directed. Uh, in fact, I've noticed, but just rewatching it, that that Snyder has admirable restraint in that in this movie when it comes to slow motion. <laughs> yes. Like there's there's hardly any of that that trademark slow motion action scene stuff here. The you know, only very, the only memorable one that stood out in my mind is when he has his fist on the snow and like that part. Yeah, which which shockingly actually worked in that moment really well. Which you know is one of those things. Any movie making technique can be incredibly effective if used in moderation. So I think you know Snyder's direction overall is not bad. Um, and the acting is solid, and the casting is great. I think what we have here is a failure to understand Superman as a character. And if you just get a little bit of that comic book Superman's optimism, hope, and joy, this would be a very, very different movie, Chris. Yeah, and I think a lot of this is just like an overreaction to like Superman, like the tradition. So like a, a lot of, a lot of fans say that, you know, I want him to be more quote unquote interesting or be this or be that. And so I think it's an overreaction and, and trying to, like I said before, put a filter on the character that just completely loses the essence of the character. I, you know, I, I always draw comparisons to Superman and Captain America. They're the two kind of staunch you know do the right thing type of characters um you know and you know not without their their warts or whatever but like i think like for example for for me it's when you walk away from watching this movie how does it make you feel and this film while i enjoyed my viewing experience this time around did not have me walking away feeling good, hopeful, optimistic. Um, it just felt like, well, there's some dark mess in this world and stuff gets messed up all the time. And thankfully this time we had somebody to help save us from complete destruction. There, I wasn't left with this overarching theme of optimism and, and sentiment. Um, but, you know, in contrast, you have something like, you know, Captain America, the first Avenger, which is not a perfect film. Uh, it's a little bit cheesy and quirky, but I mean, good God, it's Captain America. It's, you know, stuck in the 1940s and, or set in the 1940s. And, and that's what they're going for. But like all I need from from watching um, the, the first Avenger is that moment where he dives on the grenade. And that is everything to me, that one moment. And, and I think with just one moment like that or two, that would be enough to carry this film and, and to bring you to the point where you're like, you know what, it's going to be okay. 
And I think if you had one or two scenes like that in this film, you could have achieved a, you know, a similar sentiment walking away from it. I can agree with that. You know, we, we talked a lot about the snap and, and, you know, Superman killing Zod because Zod is threatening these people. And he said, he's going to keep killing blah, blah, blah. You know, in, in most versions of, of a scene like that, when the villain decides to turn on the civilians as a way of getting to Superman, it's because Superman has shown this deep love and concern for people. He'll stop what he's doing and try to save people. Even, you know, again, going back to the old ones, Chris Reeves, Superman 2, they're like, the, 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 the Kryptonian villains discover that he's trying to save people and then use that against him. But in this movie, I never got that sense that Zod was like, hey, you know, Superman really likes people, so I need to use that against him. Because, you know, in that entire scene, it never felt like he was making an effort to try to save people. And there was something that felt so icky about the ending when when half of Metropolis looks like it's been leveled and Superman is standing there making out with Lois Lane. I'm like that that that's a little tone deaf superman like I'm glad you found your lady there but you and Zod just leveled half the city god knows how many people died and I didn't see you trying to you know catch any of them falling out of a building that's crumbling or something you know so I think that's probably part of it and I'm not saying that other portrayals of superman haven't had property damage and that people could have not you know died in some of these conflicts but there was always an effort made, I think, in those portrayals to show that that Superman will attempt to save as many as he can, even when he realizes he can't save anybody, everybody. And and here, I don't think we got that sense. And that is a that's a part that's missing. And again, people say this is a young Superman; he's just starting out. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, that's all fine and dandy. But who you are at that point in your life, I he's think th- that's he's thirty three. That's not super young. Yeah, that's shaped pretty well. If if your first instinct is, I'm going to save people, then that is going to be your first in- instinct, regardless of level of experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I almost put this as one of my big fixes, is the scene where um, he rescues his mother after she's put in a, a, a cane chokehold. Um and he just completely tears through them. Uh, my at first, it's like, oh, it's cool. He's gonna save his mom. Like, don't talk to my mom like that, jabroni. But he completely tears through like the silos and all this farm equipment. Completely levels large swaths of the neighborhood. You know, and and I hope and just, all these farmers have really good insurance, right? And so, like, it just seems like he's so reckless. And I think if he would have, you know, used a little bit of caution there, then the moment with with saving the civilians would have landed a little bit better. But much throughout, like the Zod fight in the third act of the film, it's so reckless, and there's absolutely no like consciousness of of the damage that's being done and the lives that are unnecessarily being endangered because you want to take out uh ihop and sears the not so subtly placed product placements rest in peace sears yeah can we just also point out that as a as a if we had a lightning round the first lightning round fix was would be dial back on the product placement <laughs> it is so blatant in this movie like i know every movie has it it's part of the game we all played right but but I mean, the, it was almost as bad as the last Power Rangers movie, where literally, <laughs> where literally, what was it? Uh, 
what was it IHOP or was it a donut shop or something like it actually played a role in the plot like you have to go to this donut shop to find this yes. McDuffin or something like it was almost there it was so in your face just a little bit less would have made it feel a little more real and geez louise the that redheaded kid that's now the manager at IHOP how central is this figure that he just happens to be in every place well i think was was that supposed to be Pete Ross? Because I in, think in so. The, in the comic books, Pete Ross is 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 a ginger, and he is um, I think he's a ginger, and it's him and and Lana Lang and Clark are like sort of these three really close friends. So it you know maybe that was some kind of attempt to harken back to like the the comic books and his youth and everything, but a, a little misguided perhaps that he just keeps popping up everywhere. Um, not as misguided as uh, ultimately Zack Snyder's take on, on Jimmy Olsen turned out to be, but, but oh, fairly well. misguided, let's say that. Chris, any final thoughts on the Man of Steel? Um, Henry Cavill is impeccable, and he's perfectly cast, and he did absolutely nothing wrong. I, I You know what? I totally agree. And I said this earlier, I think the cast in general is just is just fantastic cast. Like Whoever did the casting on this movie did their job right. These these are great actors for these roles overall. Um, you know, with, with the minor misstep here and there. But I think overall, this is a really, really fantastic cast. And so it's just a shame that the writing kind of let them down, at least at least in this nerd's opinion. I'm getting, I'm getting mad vibes of the next film franchise. I want to fix The Amazing Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield and Henry Cavill, perfectly cast, perfectly acted, um, superhero characters, and they were let down by the writing and the direction uh, around them. You know what? Uh, I, I would love doing that. That sounds like a lot of fun. All right. Well, that is it for our Byword Big Talk. Stick around after this final break for everybody's favorite nerd Byword segment, Nerd Commendations. <laughs> And we're back, and it's time for... Chris, what are you commending to our nerd following this week? So, um, several years ago, I was um, a bit strapped for cash, so I could not afford um, to play a lot of console video games, but my gamer heart just would not be quiet. So I played a lot of mobile games, free to play mobile games. Uh, my absolute favorite. Um, and I know our loyal listener Lex Pendragon knows all about this. Uh, Avengers Alliance, the Facebook game. Like that was basically the only reason I was on Facebook Avengers Alliance, rest in peace. Love that game so much. I miss it so much. And there have been a lot of Marvel free-to-play games that have come and gone since then that really never scratched that itch for me. I've since been able to dive back into console gaming, but um, I got a new one that has finally scratched that itch after all these years, and that is Marvel Future Revolution. Uh, it's Marvel's first open-world mobile game. Uh, Free Rome, PPR, Multiverse, Converging Story. Uh, the official synopsis says, quote, Marvel Future Revolution begins when numerous Earths converge in the multiverse to form an entirely new primary Earth filled with unique zones and missions to explore, such as high-tech New Stark City, 
the dangerous Hydra Empire, the wild and rugged Sakaar, and many more. As agents of the newly formed Omega Flight superhero team, players will work together to battle an onslaught of supervillains and defend the primary Earth from a never-ending series of threats, end quote. And so you have about six or seven characters that you can choose from. Uh, You pick five to build out your roster. I think you can buy additional roster spots with resources later on. But uh, my current roster, uh, you know I'm rolling with Spider-Man and Storm, uh, Captain America, Doctor Strange. Um, I think you can also choose from Iron Man, Star-Lord, Captain Marvel, um, and so this is just a really fun game. Um, I don't have necessarily one of, one of the things that kind of, uh, made me move away from freemium games like that free to play mobile games is you have to log in every day and do all these necessary things, make all the checklists. And this one, you know, you can kind of pick up and play at your own pace, your own leisure. You probably want to log in, uh, at least once a day to, to get your, your login rewards and stuff, but it's not as time consuming you can kind of play at your own pace uh more so than other ones so marvel future revolution uh it's really an extensive campaign and you know you know me i love a good campaign so like the storyline some of the side missions are absolutely goofy you walk from one person talk to them walk two feet away to talk to another person and then boom that's the side mission but i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna complain that much with a free game like that but the main storyline is really really interesting the graphics are out of this world better than some console games so um it does take a while to download it first so you probably want to have your your phone or your ipad on the charger um while you're downloading the initial patch but this is a really, really fun game. The mechanics, the fighting style, it's really, really fun. So I highly recommend Marvel Future Revolution. Jeez, Chris, you're making life hard on me here. I'm going to have to start <laughs> facing some of my preconceived notions. I have to say, as a lifelong console gamer, um, mobile gaming has never particularly appealed to me. Now, my wife will swear by it. She loves playing games on her phone. But there is something... Um, about so many mobile games, when I tried them at least, that felt so icky. Like they're all just trying to to squeeze as much money out of me as possible, yes. you know. And so I've always kind of shied away from you know mobile games because I just don't want to be harassed every five minutes for money or be you know put on some kind of waiting thing. Like you can play again in two hours unless you pay for this, you know. I'm just I don't want that. It makes me feel icky. I want to be able to just play my game. And I'm more than willing to pay up front if you just leave me alone when I'm actually playing the game. <laughs> so so here's my question. Marvel Future Revolution. Does it let me just play the game or does it harass me for cash? Yeah, so like it will have like those pop-up ads like, hey, do you want this costume? Do you want this costume? The biggest thing is costumes, which um, for the most part, what I've seen is only a cosmetic thing a la Fortnite. So um, my, my kids always frustrate me because they're like, I need this new skin. Um, which is a, an uncomfortable term to begin with. Um, so it's just like a cosmetic type thing. So you could just click out of those ads. But the the one that I wholeheartedly agree is like you can't play unless you like wait for your energy to recharge. That is not an issue in this game. You could just play and play and play and play and play. All right. Well, then I might have to just give this one a shot. All right. So I did some homework for your nerd commendation this week, Dave, because I saw that the show was coming out. So what do you got for us? Yeah, so, um, yeah, the show was coming out. So what better time to talk about 
uh, Why the Last Man, the comic book. Um, one of the great seminal books to come out of my all-time favorite imprint at DC Comics, Vertigo. Oh, Vertigo, how I miss you. Vertigo, come back, please. Where have you gone? We miss you so. We just need some Vertigo back in our lives. So Why the Last Man is uh, a post-apocalyptic science fiction comic book written by Brian K. Vaughn with art by... Oh, yeah, with art by Pia Guerra. Uh, it was published uh, at Vertigo from 2000 through through 2008. And I have the pleasure of having the entire series in trade paperbacks. I was a late comer to the series and didn't actually collect it in single issues. Um, and the series centers on Yorick Brown and his pet capuchin monkey Ampersand, who are the only uh, biological males who survive a plague that targets the Y chromosome. Now, this series in some ways is early 2000s and, you know, some allowances have to be made for that. But if you are willing to make those allowances, uh, it is probably one of the best books uh, to be produced at Vertigo in the early 2000s. It is absolutely fantastic and much of it still holds up tremendously. I can't really speak to, you know, the television adaptation at this point. I know there's three episodes out. Uh, I haven't had a chance to actually... Um, watch any of it, but uh, I, I find the comic book series holds up wonderfully, and I could just read it till the cows come home. There is uh, a lot here um, about uh, gender roles, gender identity, again, through the filter of the early 2000s, and things, you know, in some ways, thankfully, have certainly changed um, since the early 2000s in, in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, there's still a lot here to love as far as its commentary on 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 men, on women, on on preconceived notions of gender and gender identity and gender roles. Um, at the same time, it's also just a really, really good story of this guy trying to basically cross the United States in a sort of a post-apocalyptic, everything went to crapscape because half of the population is gone, um, just trying to get to his girlfriend. And so there, there is a really a lot to love here. The art uh, by Piaguerra is absolutely fantastic and holds up throughout. Um, I love so much about this book uh, in, in the characters and how they are portrayed, uh, particularly uh, Agent 355, who ultimately uh, is supposed to be uh, protecting uh, Yorick as, you know, the, the last biological male around. Um, she is one of my all-time favorite comic book characters period, probably ever. And so just, you know, seeing this, this journey is uh, fantastic. And I'm so glad that they're adapting it. I really hope the television series uh, does the comic justice while maybe fixing some of the more problematic things, you know, in it through a more modern lens. Uh, but I will, I will reread this book frequently. I still think the bulk of it totally holds up, Chris. Yeah, so I read the th uh, first three issues on uh, DC Universe Infinite, and that's that was my uh, first immediate takeaway. I was like, oh man, this is very much of its time. So as, uh, some of the dialogue is a little bit uh, cringy, a uh, little bit unfortunate, but um, I also was happy to see that, um, you know, in the credits that Pia Guerra is listed as like the co-creator. I love when they do that in comics of like the, the writer and the artist as being, you know, listed as like storytellers. Like, I, I just love that because they're, they're equal parts of the story. So 
Um, I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of Brian K. Vaughn, a man, you know, writing this female centric thing and like this social commentary thing. But then when they started listing Pia Guerra as like the co storyteller, I was like, well, maybe it was, was a collaborative thing. And then some, some of those things started to iron out over the, as, as the issues went on, but I'm definitely intrigued to keep reading this. Um, it's very, very fun. Um, feels like a video game like i feel like i've played this video game or i want to play this video game um and then i'm also super stoked to start checking out the series i haven't hit play yet hulu i always forget about hulu i do this bundle and i always forget about hulu um but I, i've got to get caught up on what we do in the shadows as well over there the one of the greatest television shows ever you know and i think it's it's actually fair uh, to the question a little bit, you know, a, a you know Brian K. Vaughan as a man writing this female centric book. I also think though that uh, part of why it works is because the main character is a male, then stuck in this female centric world and is trying to you know figure out how to navigate that. And so I think Brian K. Vaughan's viewpoint works best in, in those scenes focused, you know, squarely on York. And I, and I think. Uh, I think Pia Guerra had probably a really strong influence on many of the scenes that primarily focus on women because much of it rings fairly true, even though I may not be the best judge of that. <laughs> um, but but as somebody who, you know, as, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, has you know been surrounded by strong women his whole life um, and women have sort of, you know, loomed large in my upbringing in pretty much every way, shape or form. Um, there, again, there is a lot to love about the series. Not perfect by modern standards, but I think overall I can forgive it its early 2000s-ness. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that kind of helps it um, that helps it work a little bit is that Yorick is such a bumbling idiot. So um, it, it, you can kind of forgive some of the, the cringiness of that character in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, folks, that is it for this week's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another adventure in the nerd world. If uh, you liked what you heard today, please be sure to get on your favorite podcast platform, give us a rating and or review, and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are available wherever podcasts can be found, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. Be sure to also hit us up on social media. You can find us, uh, our show page on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at that nerd Chris or that nerd Dave on those same platforms. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.